This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to Kinda Mason's Brown Rice Hour a podcast that quilts together a fabric of connection between land, race, money, culture, and spirit. Discover a connection that engages with the most inspiring and cutting-edge thought leaders today, pointing toward our collective healing and liberation. If you are interested in supporting the Brown Rice Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Conda. So welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, This is the Brown Rice Hour, where uh, I have conversations at the intersection of land, race, money, culture, and spirit. My name is Conda Mason, and I am very happy that you have joined us for this incredible um, podcast that we are going to explore with my special guest today, who is... Mr. Paul Hawken. And um, I just want to, first of all, say thank you, Paul, for coming on this podcast. An honor, a pleasure, a joy, really, (laughs) totally. So cool to have you here. Paul is, he's, if you don't know Paul, which most of you probably do, but just um, so you know, for sure, he is the founder of uh, Project Drawdown, and he's so many things, and he's also the uh, the founder of Project Regeneration. He is a brilliant author of many, many books. He is an innovator. Um, I see you, Paul, as the person who really, really is in the forefront of wellness, of like institutionalized business wellness. How do we make wellness something that is actually um, where people can find it? And starting with the Erwan, starting the first, the really first health food store. And 
Yeah, natural food. Sorry, natural food store. And um, so many things that you have done that has been um, innovative and amazing. And so we're going to talk to Paul about his latest book, primarily, that is incredible and is necessary and is available right now today. Um, and we're going to talk about that as it pertains to the climate crisis that, um, that the world is in. And Paul's work is in the forefront of helping us think through, understand, and act and move forward. So before we get into all of this, though, Paul, I like to open up sacred space. Okay. And I do that just by um, one is honoring the ancestors on the land where we are both. I am in Louisiana now, and this is the Choctaw country, the unceded land of the Choctaw people who are still here. And in the parish that I particularly live in is um, Rapides Parish is where they are primarily still here, which is wonderful to to know. I'm wondering where you're calling in from. I'm on the unceded land of the coastal Miwok, um, who extended up the coast and then into the um, San Joaquin Valley as well. Um, so um, it's an interesting way again because oftentimes people say, "What should I do? You know, what's the first thing? What's the most important thing right. to do about climate?" And I say the most important, most important thing is to find out where you live. Mm. Land, the land, the migratory birds, mm-hmm. you know, the native right. plants, you know, in other words, How do you even if it's paved over, you know, which in some cases it certainly is, but you don't know where you live. And when you find out where you live and what's going on there, that unless you're just in streets, you know, um, but if you're in anywhere proximate to country, to land, uh, to forest, to prairie, to grasslands, to mountains, to rivers, to streams, to riparian corridors, to creeks, you know, anything like that. Um, when you find out, really find out where you live, you know, you discover you're living in a miracle. (laughs) You're living in something that is so, awesome full of awe you know and wonder and delight and connections and i just think we've lost that sense that you know i I said i you know natural food instead of health food the reason i started the store was because there were health food stores and they had vitamins and supplements and nostrums and you know women wearing white hosiery and look like nurses you know and and i I just felt like what i wanted to have a store that took you back to the, the the life of the land, it brought you back to life, yeah, and yeah. so we never sold vitamins, and uh, never sold pills, never sold supplements. Mm-hmm. We sold food, so, so and uh, yeah, uh, food as vitamins, food as nourishment. Absolutely, I don't remember seeing any <clears throat> African American, Native Americans taking vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> 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 <In> my calcium. <laughs> Gosh, 
Paul, there's so much that I want to talk to you about, and um, there's so much richness that um, we can share on this podcast. I, I, I always begin talking about food, actually, and because it's called the Brown Rice Hour for a reason. Brown Rice actually changed my life. Um, I became what is known as a vegan now, but it's just someone who ate natural food and... Um, I got rid of, you know, a lot of the, the the dairy products and the meat and all that stuff. It wasn't called anything then. Um, and this was in 1975 is when I changed my diet because I could never breathe out of both nostrils at the same time. And I realized a guy that I knew, he said, you know, you could change that if you just stop doing dairy. And I was drinking milk constantly. So anyway, I changed that. I stopped that and meat. And lo and behold, I could breathe for the first time out of both nostrils since I was think I was born. Wow. And I never looked back. And the stomach cramps that I always had eating also stopped. And I realized I was lactose intolerant. <laughs> so that was a big thing for me. And but then I did the um, I did the macrobiotic thing for a while. And brown rice was um, I, I loved rice. I was a white rice eater, right? And 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 then when I discovered brown rice, it just changed everything. So and now I'm growing rice. Um, so I named this the brown rice hour for many reasons. And I'm a foodie. I love food. I love natural food. And I'm always curious, I love the conversation to have about when I ask the question that I'm going to ask you, it actually, it can tell a lot about, about a person and, and kind of, um, yeah, it reveals, it's kind of revealing. So the question is, what was as a child, if you had one, did you have and what was your comfort food? And who prepared it? What was the food that made you feel safe in the world, comforted in the world? And who was it that prepared it? Wow. Um, well, just to go back a little bit, I was the earliest recorded case of asthma in San Mateo County where I was born. So within a few months of being born, I had trouble breathing. And so I had asthma until, which I want to get to until I was 20, but, um, the, 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 probably the food that the, well, I, I remember several things. My mom came from a farming family and it was very similar to when I was in the civil rights movement, the only safe place you could be in the South, if you're a civil rights worker is with black families, either on the farm or in the city. But, Oftentimes it was in more rural conditions, you know, and I remember the food was fantastic, you know, and, but it reminded my mom and my grandparents too, because, you know, everything we ate, we made, you know, we didn't open a can or something like that. And so I remember two things, one strawberry shortcake, which was, you make this, these shortcakes, you know, and with flour and baking soda it didn't have any sweetener in it the the shortcake none you know it was just like a biscuit like a flat mm -hmm. biscuit and then we'd have fresh strawberries from the farm you know crushed with sugar of course you know and then uh whipped cream we made from the cream from the cow you know that we had you know so we had whipped cream and strawberries and shortcake that was like super special then we made ice cream and we handmade it with rock salt and one of those things you turned and oh yeah 
we kept taking turns at, you know, because it took a lot of muscle for a little kid, you know. <laughs> Those two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I and did. it was like, but it was so exciting, you know, it had strawberry, frozen strawberry pieces in it, you know, and vanilla and of course cream and eggs and, you know, so those are things. And then the other thing that I remember from my mom is it was called, we call, she called it tamale pie. I don't know what it was, but I remember it had corn and beans and, and it just, it was just like a melange really of things. And, uh, so those are the foods I remember. Um, and where were you again? Where were you located at that time? At that time, we were located in uh, Walnut Creek, but my um, grandparents uh, lived near Oakdale in the valley, and that's where their farm was. They were almond farmers. If you said almond, the people knew you weren't from there. Almond. <laughs> almonds. I think about almonds. Um, but Funny. the thing is that, you know, I had asthma all my life, and, and by the time I was a teen, I was taking three times the the, the maximum daily dose of aminophila and ephedrine, which is kind of like a mild stimulant, methadrine, really. I mean, it's like a wow. and I, three times a daily dose to keep breathing, you know. And I had three different doctors, you know, prescribing because I had to get three prescriptions to make sure I had enough. And I read a book when I was 20 that said, if you're sick, it's your fault. And it really pissed me off because I had, <laughs> had asthma from five six, five, six months old, you know. And it's like, <laughs> and at the same time, it said basically, if you're sick, it's your responsibility, you know. And that actually, that took, in other words, because the doctors hadn't done squat for me since I was born. Wow. And um, and so I started a food fast, which is brown rice for ten days and tea. And for the first time in my life, I could breathe without medicine. This is so, crazy. That's crazy. No, that's, that's true. Right. Yeah, that's what started Erwan. That's what started Erwan. It's like I'm going, Erwan. holy smokes. And so at first, Kanda, I was like, wait a minute. I don't want to be a food fattest. That's what they were called then. You know, people who did eat, you know, hamburgers and milkshakes and all that sort of stuff. And I like my hamburgers. I like my milkshakes. I like my beer. You know, I like whatever, you know. And I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. It's that simple after 19 years of American medical. Mm-hmm establishment administrations you know and pills and this and i mean i remember one time the doctor saying you know asthma is really caused by issues with your mother you know and i'm going oh gosh okay I, I just said look at anybody in the world would have issues with my mother and <laughs> so don't give me that <laughs> and uh oh. you're darn right i have issues with my mother but that ain't it you know but anyway um it was I, so I started because I was on a food fast. Then I would drink a beer. I go, whoa, look what that did to the part of the brain, alcohol, the part of the brain that controls the lungs, you know, yep. well, push that away because you feel it so strongly, you know. And then, um, same with, I just try all different foods, you know, and mm-hmm. I felt like for the first time in my life, I could actually experience what the food did. Yeah. Because when you're eating a lot, you know, a whole mixture of food every day and it changes and, you know, you know, it's just, and you, whether you feel good or not, yeah, you can't feel the specific effects or impacts of that food. And so I was stubborn and I, uh, and I, and when I kept trying things, I got, <laughs> all right, all okay, right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what happens is like to buy and, uh, my, my business partner, Clive company, Bill, would uh, 
you know, I lived in the warehouse down in Tenderloin, you know, and, and, uh, so he started too. He weighed 230, 40 pounds and he lost 80 pounds like that, you know, wow. he went on the diet too. And, um, but we had to go to Japantown, Chinatown, Lebanese town, we called it, wasn't really, to the mission, to the Seventh-day Adventist mill and the farmer's market on a Saturday to get everything we needed for that week. There was no, there's no place we could go to shop. And, and so everyone was like, it, gosh, you know, if I figure this out, other people are going to figure this one out. <laughs> so everyone was, was really like a farm stand, you know, in the city. It was like the foods, you know, we didn't sell dairy, of course. But and what year was that, Paul, that you started everyone? Oh, that was 1966. 66 mm-hmm. in Boston. Yeah, Boston first, yeah, and then L.A., yeah. Boston, and then L.A., which became nowhere. They reversed it, right? No, no, I stayed Erwan. I stayed Erwan, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's, it's now it's like the most expensive store in L.A., and everybody jokes about it. I mean, the, um, I mean, it, it, you can just sit there and look at all the, you know, celebrities coming in and out, the influencers, you know, I mean... Uh, it's crazy so that's not what we had in mind we had in mind disconnecting people to food but it's 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 the dna of erwan is still there no question about it and quality yeah so there's just the one yeah in la because when i I used to live in la and that's where i shopped so when i changed my diet to in 75 like i said there was there was I was in the Bay Area, I was in Berkeley, and there was there were no health food, natural food stores at all. It was I mean, well, there was a co-op. There's a co-op, Berkeley co-op. Yeah, co-op. And everything's in a vat, right? There was very little prepackaged food at all. And you got all your stuff in, in bulk. And um hmm. that's that's how we lived and that's how we ate. And it yeah. changed totally changed my life. Totally changed my life too. And really realizing it's so interesting that you had the breathing thing from asthma. I had the breathing thing from the dairy. And I don't know if you're familiar with the guy, Arnold Arett. He had the mucusless diet healing system. And that's what I did. And it just changed my life. And I never looked back and I haven't looked back since then. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you? (laughs) Exactly. So after these, I entered this whole conversation just from a body that wasn't well and finding wellness through food. Somebody said to me at one point, like, well, how's your diet going? I said, I'm not on a diet. You are. <laughs> right. I eat everything I want to eat. <laughs> you're being, you've been, your taste buds have been hacked by big food. Yeah. So, Oh God! And, and you're the one that's on a diet that's been designed uh, by uh, food chemists who know that salt, sugar, and fat yeah. are, yeah. you know, in, instinctively wanted by the human body because they were so scarce, you know, for yeah. hundreds of thousands of years and so forth. You know, so I never, I never, I never think of myself on a diet. I eat. I don't know. I want to eat everything. I totally am not on a diet, and yet I eat exactly what I want. And what I want are the things that make me feel good. Yeah, that's what I want, right? And yeah. and people say, "Don't you miss eating meat, or don't you miss eating this or that?" I go, "For me, it's meat, and for me, it's dairy. That's just me. I don't, and I'm not someone who says everybody. 
this is condemnation. This is how I have to eat to be healthy. And when I do eat well, um, I don't miss anything that I don't. I just, Why would you miss something that makes you feel bad? Yeah, it's not it's not my palate anymore at all because it's been many years. So yeah. just really happy that I, you know, had this person help me find my way. And and so then all other things change too, right? A lot of other things go with that. A lot of things go with that. So I just want to talk about, you know, um, Paul, you have been in my life for a while and I have so enjoyed our friendship. And I was just um, right before I started this with you and I was, you know, getting my little face together and what have you. And I thought, wow, he used to be my hair guy too. Remember that? Well, my wife's company. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Not me. Not you, but yeah, but we, we spent some time in the, in, in, in the chair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. But that was for John Warner, who is the founder of Green Chemistry and who wanted, yeah. to, get, who wanted to get rid of hair dyes completely because yeah, they're that. so toxic and poisonous. You know? They are so toxic and poisonous, but yeah. I've done so many wonderful things. And, and so the book Drawdown um, was the latest that um, when we were, um, when I, when you were really bringing forth and so much information and now with the latest book, Regeneration, um, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crises in One Generation, Ending the Climate Crises in One Generation. I'm really curious, Paul, between those two books, what changed within you and what changed on the macro level between those two books for you to write this next book? Well, um, things did change for me, but Regeneration, I had decided to write as a sequel before I had finished Jada. Okay. So So it's already... Yeah, it wasn't like after the fact, but I mean, things did change as well, you know, in terms of how in four years, well, yeah, in four years, a lot changes for everybody. Um, the Drawdown started in 2001, really, for me, and that was when the third assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was released. And like each successive, you know, assessment, it's more dire, more pessimistic, more cautionary, more, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, in its uh, statements, you know, than the prior uh, assessment. And that is because the science improved, the forecasting improved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to kind of parse, you had to kind of parse it, you know, read between the lines because it was put out as consensus science. Okay. Well, there's no such thing as consensus science. Science is evidentiary right. uh, and it's never fixed. It's always changing. I mean, there are certain laws like the, you know, first and second law of thermodynamics that are different than science because they're, until disproven, they're a law of the you know phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But science itself, you know, is a learning and a constant iterative learning process and so forth. So, um, and so, what it meant by consensus was that you know uh, Russia, USSR, you know, then but then Russia later, um, but Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, you know, U.S., China, you know, OPEC countries, coal countries, um, then actually wouldn't release it unless they tamped down the summary report and the findings. And so that was consensus science. It was actually politics. 
Yeah. So when you read it, you had to kind of read between the lines as to what the scientists underneath that who were doing the real work were really wanted to convey to, to, to the world. And at that time, what I noticed, Kanda, was that I wanted to know, I wanted to know what to do. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I wanted was to name the goal. And at that time, as now, what people kept saying uh, was talking about fighting and tackling and combating, you know, um, climate change and or mitigating was a popular word too, still is, um, you know, conquering. I mean, I mean, it was crazy. And you could, you could just guess which gender those words came from, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, these war and sports metaphors were being used as if, the climate was in it out there somewhere that we could fight, tackle, combat, or, you know, conquer. And, um, and to me, verbs are not goals. Uh, and so I wanted a goal. I wanted to name the goal. And the only goal that made sense to me was not to combat it or, you know, fight it or even net zero, which is what Princeton was saying at that time in 2001, the carbon mitigation project was to reverse it. I mean, let's, let's set the goal, everyone. That's what we want. We want to reverse what we've done. Mm-hmm. And we want to bring that carbon back home that we've put up there because it belongs here on the, in the biosphere. Right. And I went around basically, uh, asking people I knew, could, do we have a list of, you know, the climate solutions? No, I knew we didn't. I was a journalist. I looked for them, but can we make one? Can we map, measure and model the most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. And it was known then as it is now that 2050 was sort of a threshold date in terms of achieving net zero. That is by that time or before we should be really bringing carbon back home. We should be not only not emitting, but we should actually starting to uh, reduce the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And I talked to lots of, not lots, but many NGOs and friends, you know, uh, institutions, universities, and so forth about that. And I always got nods, like, good idea. Um, we don't do that, or we don't know how to do that, or we're not funded to do that. And, you know, fair enough. Um, and they said, why don't you do it? And I said, that's why I'm asking you, because I don't know how to do it. And um, But I want to have it. I want to see it. I want to understand that. And after a few years, I just stopped doing that because it did, there was no uptake, which sort of confused me. And at that time, you know, and right, really right up until when the book was published, 2017, um, April, that if you Google the top solutions to global warming, you got eat smart, you know, whatever that meant. I mean, uh, move closer to work, uh, change your car, uh, wash in cold water, uh, this is a union of concerned scientists that put a power strip in your home entertainment center. No, I'm not kidding. It's like, wow. really? Wow. I, I'm, I rhetorically said in speeches, well, what if you don't have a home entertainment center? Should you get one to put your power strip in? I mean, the, and, and these were just sort of proverbial things. You should say, pet your dog and love your mother too. I mean, yeah, eat smart, of course, you know, I mean, right. it's just, it, it, it's, it was bizarre to me that the greatest crisis civilization has ever faced and may ever was there was there wasn't a list of solutions, and um, the only solu- solutions about forests was stop doing it, stop cutting it, 
yes, good idea. There was nothing about farming whatsoever. There was nothing about food. There was nothing about the fact that 82% of the biodiversity is on the land of four to five percent of the population, aka indigenous people. In other words, and that is not a coincidence, you know. There was nothing about protecting human rights. There was, I mean, I could go on and on. There's nothing about women. There was no <laughs> gender. There was nothing. I mean, it, 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 it was so weird. And again, I think it came from science and it was very male dominated climate yeah. science, you know, even yeah. though the first person to really discover, discover that CO2 was the primary CO2 gas was Eunice New, uh, Newton Foot in 1856 in America, you know, and although she was an amateur scientist and the, her work wasn't fully published until later. So other men took credit for this, that discovery, but she was the first one to discover it. So Interesting. When I saw her in the book, I actually looked her up to see. Yeah. Yeah. I never, I hadn't heard of her and I just. Exactly. Well, that's not the first woman we haven't heard of who actually did the thing that other men took credit for, you know? Yeah. But, Anyway, it just like, uh, I, so I, it was in 2013, I, you know, and Bill McKibben wrote that piece, Global Warming, Terrifying New Math. And, and what he did kind of was basically Mark Campanale, uh, uh, who started Carbon Tracker in mm-hmm. London, had measured, um, looked at the balance sheet of every coal, gas, and oil company and uh, in the world to get his hands on and to see what their assets were. That is, you know, and their assets, of course, were the reserves, the coal reserves, the gas reserves, the oil reserves. Right. And um, and he added them up, you know, like in terms of, you know, carbon dioxide, you know, or carbon really. Uh, and um, and said, if we burn that, we're Venus. So how can you call this an asset? How can you call this a financial asset? I mean, it's not, you know. And he called the bluff of these companies that was sort of overlooked for quite a while until recently. But what Bill did in 2013 is set a match to it. So he just (laughs) burned it. And it was terrifying. It was horrible. (laughs) And people came to me and said, oh, my God, it's game over, you know. And, and, you know, really had been so effective as environmentalists, as climate activists. And, you know, I'm going to move to B.C., take my kids, you know, get a farm or whatever. I mean... And, and I just felt that the game over is sometimes, especially in AA, although I've never been, I've never been an addict. My, my addiction is workaholism and writing, but, but I've never been addicted to substances, but even though we're all addicted in some way. And, and so in AA, you know, there's this belief that when you surrender, that is when you, Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's to a monotheistic God or not, the fact is you surrender. I don't know. I give up. I'm, right. I'm out of control. I, right. you know, and so forth. It's really, it's, it's really a point of, 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 uh, transformation. That's, you reach that point of transformation. So I thought that Bill's piece was actually more like a, a opening to game on as opposed mm-hmm. to game over. Mm-hmm. So I gathered people in, uh, who didn't know how to do it either. By the way, Amanda Ravenhill and Chad Fishman. Oh, and yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, and we created an organization and we got maybe 200, uh, enrolled 200 people, researchers from all over the world, young researchers, postdocs, and, 
in, you know, in universities from six continents and 20 some odd countries and advisors. And, you know, I mean, I wrote the book, but, you know, uh, but, but, the research and it was informed by a we, and I felt like we need to talk to we, you know, us had to talk to us rather than somebody saying, I know you don't listen up. And I, I wanted to have it like, this is what we know. This is what we can do. This is what it will cost. This is what the impact it'll be if these solutions scale continuously, you know, in a rigorous, but reasonable way until 2050. And could we then, in our models, achieve uh, drawdown by 2050? And we found out actually that we couldn't, by the way. And so, uh, and then in the back of the book, we have two other scenarios where we say, okay, at the present rate, you know, we won't, if these solutions are scaling, but they have to scale faster in particular areas in order to do that. So that was drawdown. Right. Um, so it's a long explanation, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And then drawdown. Regeneration. Yeah, now you're regeneration, you know, and yeah. And, and, and it, so, you know, think about the difference between the words, Paul. It reminds me, I think about drawdown. Drawdown feels to me, I mean, it's like it's this verb that feels like someone else can do that, like someone else needs to do that. I don't feel like I can do that. Regeneration. Mm feels like a state of being. Oh, I can do that. That's exactly right. Very different feeling to them. And books are exactly that difference too. You know, the state of being that I am already. And yeah. And so you, you, and, and you point that out so beautifully in the book of what regeneration is. I mean, I want you to state the, 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 the definition of regeneration and not just definite, but it's, it's, it's wholeness of what it is and who we are and how we are already that. Well, exactly. I mean, the thing is that, you know, you go back to the climate science and it was about future existential threat, which is a fear-based True, by the way, but invokes fear, of course. I mean, um, and then activists took those science and uh, started blaming and shaming and, you know, guilt tripping, and <laughs> which yeah. was accurate as well in terms of who was yeah, being pointed out. So science and activists got it right. Yeah. Uh, but then you have somebody who isn't, in, say, an activist or a scientist, and then you have fear, threat, blame, shame, and guilt, you know, all mixed together. And uh, and then with these imperatives about what you should do, and if you don't do it, you're not really, you know, all this stuff basically is a good way to numb people. And uh, <laughs> just like, I have a mortgage, I have children, my mom's not, you know, has, you know, beginning of onset of Alzheimer's, you know, my, I mean, people have issues, they have problems, they have lives, you know, and so forth. So, you know, the way we were talking about it was so disengaging. And mm-hmm. and the result of that kind of is that the 98 to 99% of the world to this day mm-hmm. is totally disengaged from doing anything. 98% of the world is disengaged. Yeah. Yeah. It's crises, the biggest crises of our planetary time. Right. 90% are disengaged. People know. It's not like they don't know. They know. Half of them know. Or more than half know. They get it. They're, they're even sympathetic. 
and they don't do anything. So the question in my mind wasn't to blame people. They've been blamed enough. <laughs> it wasn't to blame, which is to, I mean, to look at the language, to look at the communication, to look yep. at what do, what do we do or what are we doing that absolutely continues to disenfranchise or disengage. So, you know, and I say like a climate denier and somebody who understands it and does nothing is the same thing from the Earth's point of view. It doesn't make any right. difference what you believe. Right. <laughs> if you don't do anything. An action and, is not an action. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and so I just feel like with Drawdown, it was from the literature, the scientific literature, it did name a goal. Um, you know, that first time, you know, where greenhouse gases peak and go down on a year to year basis. But so drawdown was a what to do, what we could do. That was what could be done book, you know, and here's the list and it never been seen before. Nobody, there was no list like it. Um, regeneration is, uh, not what we can do is how to do it. Yeah. It's, yeah, how we can do it. Yes, we are. What it's 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 to me when I think of regeneration and how you use it, it is it's so intimate. Drawdown is not intimate. It's like it's like these things can be done. Regeneration is very intimate. Yeah, it's who I am already, right. and what is happening in this body right now is regenerating. Right, cells are regenerating. Regeneration. And so there's a, words are so important, as you said, words are so important. Either you feel them and you connect with them and, and or, or it feels like it's out there somewhere. And, and I think that you're right, that a lot of why there is no engagement or so little engagement, so little inaction is that it's, it hasn't been able to, people have not been able to make it personal. Exactly. The word is, is really important because all human beings, all living forms are innately regenerative. <laughs> it's like, and, uh, it's what life does. And as you mentioned, it's what our, you know, 30 trillion cells do every nanosecond. I mean, we, we regenerate. We wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And so the, the reason I chose a word is because it is already what we do and who we are, as opposed to out there somewhere, our conceptual word, you know, that we should yeah. do. Even sustainability was completely conceptual. Like, yes, conceptual. Define that. What do you mean? Oh, okay, maybe. But that's, but we are regenerative. And when we, the way we take care of ourselves, and I know many people don't, but they don't understand, you know, what they, should be doing but they actually do take care of themselves in as much as they can you know and understand uh we take care of our children we take care of creatures around us we take care of our environment we take care of other people we go to churches and mosques and synagogues and temples all that prayer all that uh, devotion all that is about transcendently about care about yeah. love about kindness about compassion uh about uh seeing the other is not as other. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you look at the world and it's practicing regeneration every day. Now, do we have an economic system that is doing the opposite? Absolutely, of course. But um, so to me, it felt like 
Yeah, we have this extractive system. We've been born into it. We, you know, we, every economic sector or service that we receive, uh, the, or products we buy, if we pull the spring on the flower bag and look at the supply chain, it doesn't go very far before you see it's damaging life, harming life, taking life, killing life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, forests, cultures, people, land, soil, fish, oceans, you just go down the list. Every single one of them is being damaged by our economic sector. Yeah. And so that is the road to gen generation. And what's happened, I think, especially this year, but in prior years as well, is that we can begin to see now, if we look down that road, uh, we see the end of the road as opposed to, oh, well, let's just keep going. No, we can't keep going. I mean, Hurricane Ida and the droughts and the Derexos and the cyclonic disturbances and the, you know, uh, torrential rainfalls and the rising sea levels. And, you know, I mean, this goes, the drought, the migrations, you know, the, I mean, the famines, you know, all these things relate, either relate directly to climate change or are amplified by it, by global warming. And so the book suggests that we do a 180 <laughs> and mm -hmm. just that we're stealing the future from our, even ourselves now, but from our children and their children's children and all future generations, we're being really, really bad ancestors to the future. And I mean, one of the things is the hallmark of indigenous people, and I count African-Americans as indigenous people, by the way. Uh, when I say indigenous people, it's like African-Americans are different. No, they're indigenous people that got enslaved and taken away from their ancestral homes, and so they're still indigenous. But the, but in, in indigenous cultures, you know, I mean, the, the idea that you were not acting in, in the best interest of the future was anathema. You, of course you did. I mean, I listened to Hindu Omaru Ibrahim, the Chadian pastoralist, you know, and the other day, and she was talking about what we've heard before from the Iroquois Confederation, other, the idea of, plant, you know, seven generations ahead, you know, um, and, uh, but what she was saying, the, she said the same thing, but she said, we plan for seven generations ahead. We acted for the seventh generation because we knew the last seven generations. We, mm. we actually knew what happened seven generations in the past. And so you could see yourself as part of this beautiful continuity and I think there was a cultural, you know, it, unspoken but tacit understanding, you know, that people didn't even have to enunciate that if you were acting out of that, you know, if you weren't acting within that um, blessing, but also responsibility to be that continuity to the seventh generations ahead of you, you were ostracized. You were like, well, what happened to her or him? You know, I mean, that person's, you know, and they would literally ostracize you from your culture, from your tribe, from your village, from your, you know, it's like, no, you don't belong here, you know, because that's what's, and that's, you know, um, uh, so we being the settlers and colonists, you know, have a very different way of looking at the world and what we we're taught was completely the opposite. And it's very much about, you know, techno optimists, you know, basically material, you know, uh, do everything for yourself kind of economy and get as rich as you can because it, you know, it's a, it's a world that's very insecure and volatile and you better take care of yourself first. Otherwise you won't be taken care of. 
Right. The and world is a dangerous place. and It's a dangerous place and all that sort of stuff. Out of friendly universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we act that out. We tell them, yeah. We act it out and we have the world. And so then you have this thing of where, you know, languaging, when you, when you, when you say fight, combat, tackle, all that sort of stuff, you're othering the climate. You're othering it. Just saying what we did to women, it's racism, it's Islamophobia, it's anti-Semitism, you know, it's me too. It's like othering where we are othering everything. And if you other it, like Bill Gates, I'm fixing it, it, what's it? There's no it there. And, and so the, so to, to not understand, you know, bring it back to regeneration and the atmosphere and the biosphere are the same thing. One is solid, one's more gaseous, but so are we, you know, we're solid and we breathe in and out gases, right? Right. So what, what, when is a gas a human? When is it not? And when is you know, like, right. they're inseparable. So I, I just feel like regeneration is, is the default mode of life and we are light life and so what does it mean to heal the future instead of steal the future what would that mean well let's figure it out and i think people are by the way that's not us you know regeneration of the staff you know but i think people are figuring that out which is putting and i define it as putting life at the center of every act and decision that's what what life does you know and so the fact that i have to make a sentence out of it is okay and people can define it differently and probably more eloquently, but I want to make it simple. So every process, every act, everything we do, we simply ask that question and we can't get back to regenerative society and culture and economies overnight, but we can begin to ask those questions. I, I, I love it. And, you know, what I think about is when I think about all that's at at, at bay and the crises. And when I think about regeneration and how you bring it forth for me, cause even, okay. So the word regeneration, I get it. I say the word, the word is in my vocabulary. It's not in everybody's vocabulary. No. And the word that is in everyone's vocabulary that it reminds me of is relationship. And I think about my relationship with myself, right? My relationship with others, with you, with the planet, with other species, that the relationships, you said something about that the healing comes in a system when it, what was the word, when it's closest to itself? Now, the the way you heal a system is to connect more of it to itself. Connect more of it to itself. Self. I love that. The way to system is connect more of it to itself. Mm-hmm. And that for me, again, becomes the relationship is relational. And yeah. I, I feel that, and that's what has happened. It's like, I see just these disconnections, disconnections, and that is at the core. And so what, what this book is giving in my estimation you know usually it's a book about carbon is that the at the problem you're suggesting and saying that is not what's at the core that is the result of what is at the core 
that that is the result, this carbon uh, emissions that that uh, that is that is killing us and, and all that we are doing. In addition to carbon, there's so many other things. I mean, it's a it's it's a complex system, but that all those things are the result of at the core is this absence of connection. Absolutely. The, I mean, the very core of the climate crisis is a profound disconnection between people. Yep. Which is wholly evident everywhere. Yep. The disconnection between people and nature. Yep. And, uh, and then the way we've actually disconnected nature from itself through habitat fragmentation, poisoning, clear cutting, uh, acidification of, of oceans, uh, global fishing fleets, you know, hoovering out. I mean, so we've fragmented nature and disconnected it. We have fragmented our relationships to each other. Yeah. Uh, and we've created industries like uh, Facebook and others that are extractive. Yep. These are extractive industries as well that amplify our differences instead of our um, uh, uh, what we uh, agree upon and what holds us in common. Uh, and, and then we've educated ourselves and our children in places and in schools that are basically based on industrial models mm-hmm. to make workers mm-hmm. for, for machines, that is companies, uh, whether it's accountants or lawyers, whether it's, you know, you know journeymen, um, you know, mechanics, you know, I mean, whether it's, you know, manufacturing jobs or whether it's, you know, in Amazon, you know, packaging boxes all day long, you know, as fast as you can. I mean, we, we're educating people away from a sense of the living world and their connection to it. And so, uh, of course, we then get the outcome is activities that, again, you know, uh, see life as something that is other. And we yeah. talk about that way in the climate movement, which is so silly. And then as you so perfectly pointed out, the uh, carbon is uh, increased carbon, releasing carbon from the biosphere, whether it's old carbon like coal, gas, and oil and new carbon from deforestation or industrial agriculture or the wiping out of wetlands um, is basically uh, the outcome of our activity. And, and conversely, I think that when people talk about in regenerative agriculture, you know, and they speak about it in terms of carbon, you know, I think you're still missing the point. Yes, no question about it. Right. When you farm that way, carbon is sequestered and you have more carbon in the soil. But what you have more in the soil is not more carbon, you have more life. That's right. And, and, and the carbon, <laughs> life is a carbon-based form. And the <laughs> farms have more life. The farmers get to have more life. Just Absolutely. But there's so many outcomes, you know, before you get the carbon that you would want to do regenerative ag. Probably, I'd say the most important one is water itself, which is, uh, you know, farms that have changed from industrial ag to regenerative agriculture can hold 10, 20, 30 times more water in terms of the rate of infiltration from uh, rainstorms, thunderstorms, you know. And um, and then it's there in the soil. So the soil is a reservoir. Yeah. We have desiccated the earth. We've desiccated in our farms, in our deforestation, in uh, overgrazing, and the way we've managed 
uh, our grasslands and so forth. We've lost all this water. The earth is just like a person who, you know, is, you know, in a hot area, whether it's an athlete or somebody running in a death valley. At a certain point, if you desiccate, you die. Right. <laughs> you, right. Your body just can't, you know. Dies. And so we've desiccated the earth in what Regen Ag uh, and Regenerative Grazing does too, uh, I might add. Uh, is bring the earth back to life and that brings us back to life and it brings it back to life by bringing water back to life because water yeah. is also the other component of life and so but as you said it's then you bring the food there's more nutrient density the food is healthier whether you feed it to yourself or whether you feed it to an animal yeah the farmer's family she or he is are uh is more healthy and their children are more healthy yeah. Yeah. the riparian corridors are more healthy there isn't you know, phosphates and nitrogen and nitrates going down the Mississippi, the Missouri and Mississippi all the way causing the dead zone in the Gulf. I mean, uh, the pollinators come back and mixed pollinators, you know, the wild bees come back, not just the, uh, the Italian bees, you know. I mean, the, it, it comes back and what, what's in the book also is it, a few things like uh, Isabella Tree, the wilding chapter, and there's a whole section of wilding. But the, the rate at which the earth recovers and, and regenerates is astonishing. It's astonishing. And as I said, I mean, basically we're being homeschooled now by the earth, by the planet. The planet's homeschooling us. We're the students. <laughs> and, and lesson plan number one is to get in alignment with biology or life. And that's lesson number one. Do that. Um, if you don't, the feedback that's coming is going to Amplify, increase, and to the point where uh, it, it will be, it, it, it's already causing suffering and it, there'll be more and more suffering, but it's not, the climate isn't doing it to us. You know, we're changing the biosphere. That's causing global warming. And it's like every system that we have is built in an extractive manner, it's built in a way of. You know, going back even to the, the people, the planet, it's all one connected ecosystem that we have so separated, as we've been talking about, right? Everything is so separate, and it's not, it's not, it's not. If it were, we wouldn't be actually here, actually. And I go back to, I love Titnat Han's Interbe, the that whole concept of, of us being a part of all things, but... It's all the systems that we have created, all the systems. When I think about the social systems, when I think about the financial system, oh my God, we in the in the financial system is absolutely the stock market is paying people dividends and and returns on destroying the planet. It's like ah, I get more money to destroy the planet, and there are so few um, folks really paying attention to that. And, and even if they are, they turn a blind eye because of the money is so sweet, you know, and what this whole concept of money and is on this agreement that we have about this thing that has um, created so much. I mean, and, and there's Money is not good. It's not bad. It's nothing. It has no inherent value. It's whatever we we have given it, but we have given it so much power, and it's absolutely um, being used in ways that has just pilfered everything. 
and and each other for the, for the money. So there's so many parts to this. And when I think about climate and the crises and the global warming and this impending disaster that we are creating, what I love about Regeneration, the book, is you have connected all the dots, Paul. You've connected all the dots. And there's no way anybody could read that and not get that how I live my life makes a big difference. And 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 then in the end, there's just chapter on on what to do, the question what to do, right? Is is there's and then leading to the website, which the website is brilliant. Loving the website. I'm just getting deeper and deeper into it. Um so I just feel like when I look at how we have lived and how we live with each other and without each other and the separation and the indigeneity that has been so demeaned, so demeaned, so thrown away with this other mindset of separation, of hierarchy, along with separation, comes the hierarchy. Now, those two things together are just lethal because it's this hierarchy of who's on top, the humans on top, first of all, of every other being on the planet and the planet herself. And then within us, the stratification, the hierarchy, and what that has done. And so I I know that it involves relationship. It involves, it's going to take all of us. It involves connection, involves all of that. And that brings me to truth and reconciliation. Because how are we to come together when we haven't told the truth? When we haven't really told the truth about what has happened here? It was the Southern um, Poverty Law Center, I think it was, that did a survey and found out that it's something like 80% of high school students thought that, believed that, were told that the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery. With slavery, I know. (laughs) Nothing to do with slavery. It's states' rights. And so the truth hasn't been told. And yet it's time that we have to figure out bridging and bonding. We've got to figure out how to bridge without the truth, without reconciliation. And that is where I get stopped. That is where I think How do we do that? How does, because what I'm seeing right now, even in terms of like the land back movement is really, it's nascent, but it's, it's happening. It's, it's picking up the land back movement is so important. When I think about reparations, I mean, when did, it's not until now that I even hear the word reparations coming out of mouths of people that you see on television and not just, you know, us in little circles. It's, there's something going on. There is something that is moving forward and it requires truth telling. It requires this discomfort, what is been looked at and called even in, you know, the book of Robin DiAngelo, when she talks about white fragility, when we talk about um, it's going to cause this discomfort that people have to be willing to sit in and to be a part of and 
in order for us to come together to do this. Because it's like everybody is needed. Everybody's needed. We're not doing this. No one's doing this alone. How do we bridge and bond when so much harm and lies are the name of the game and separating us more? Yeah, of course. Um, in some ways, I mean, that's a call. I don't expect you to have the answer. Yeah, because I was going to call it a Wizard of Oz question, like, whoa. No, no, <laughs> no, no that's a, that's a address it. out there for me that I'm... No, I know. This is the way I see it, and I agree with um, everything you've said. The, um, the climate movement, in the most amorphous sense of the word, that is to say organizations, NGOs, churches, whatever... Uh, people, groups, networks that are actively addressing uh, it through their actions, not, and we, we, we mentioned this already, you could do something and it, the outcome is reversing worrying. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is, you know, to restore the integrity and the financial viability of, of farmers, their soil, the food, you know, okay. And that one of those outcomes is reversing global warming. Um, but the, the, the climate movement is going to become the biggest movement on earth because of one reason, because of weather. And so what's happened is that it's been very conceptual for people. That is, it's science and acronyms and metrics and, 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 and jargon and, you know, do not, do not change people. They don't change their beliefs. They don't change their attitude. They don't change what they do. Uh, what changes people is experience. Now, I'm sure science wishes that all their um, predictions from the past, which have come true, you know, would have changed people sooner or earlier. And perhaps if we didn't have a corrupt social political system, maybe that would have happened. I don't know. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe not. But I do know that <clears throat> what we are doing right now in our sundry ways, in various ways, we are rehearsing the future. That is, we're working on the solutions that become more um, relevant, trenchant, and obvious and imperative in the future. No question about it. The question is, do we have enough time is just put it aside because there's all the time in the world. Time is never ends. Uh, do we have enough time? I don't know. You know, that's another question, you know, but we have time to do what we do well and do what we do best, which is to come together. And I, I guess go back to a childhood thing, which is which sandbox you want to play in the ones where they're fighting or having a good time. Mm -hmm. And I see uh, regeneration as actually a joyous thing, as a celebratory thing, as a thing that brings people together. And um, I know some, like Adam Chapel. I know farmers who are deeply conservative, you know, and they will swear by, uh, industri uh, uh, not by industrial ag, but by a regenerative ag now, because it took them out of bankruptcy, you know, or near bankruptcy, you know, and uh, they'll just say it. What's the difference? Profit. Then, then I can make a profit again. You know, I couldn't go anywhere I was going. And so I think climate is bringing us together in ways that where the, where what, Divides us is far, far less important than what uh, yeah. unites us and so forth. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to do the most important thing about 
having a conversation, which is to listen compassionately and actively to others who you don't understand or agree with. Um, but the other thing about it is that if you Nexus is this, is the part of the website, it's uh, it is about how tos. It is the most complete. It's not finished yet. It will be, but the most complete listing and network of climate solutions and how to get them done in the world. All right. Has all the ones in drawdown, has the ones in regeneration, has others. I mean, like food apartheid wasn't in either one. It's there in Texas, for example. I love it. And, uh, so there's other things in it that don't show up in anybody's climate list. They have to be there. Yeah. A lot of them about justice and equity and so forth are there that aren't their challenges and solutions, but you know, they don't neatly fall into one or the other. They're there. Um, but if you look at the list, and, and you think about it, and if we didn't understand global warming, if we did not understand climatology, if we had no clue as to what was causing extreme weather, like Hurricane Ida, you know, for example, we're just like, oh, wow, that was a bummer. That was a really, really big hurricane. Yeah, it really was. Biggest I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we didn't understand the amplification um of uh, the warming of the Gulf causing, you know, the you know, application of the hurricanes and the force that they hit us with in Louisiana, particularly. Um, we would want to do every single solution in Nexus. Mm-hmm. Of the cascading benefits they have mm-hmm. uh, for children, for water, for, for meaningful jobs, you know, for health, for education, for the, 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 transformation of our cities, you know, uh, for biodiversity, for pollinators, for clean air, for clean water. I mean, I, you know, for, for fisheries, for, they all make sense, you know, from a sensibility that doesn't depend on a, a way of seeing the world that doesn't understand climate or doesn't understand global warming. It's okay. Yeah. And, and so, um, I know many regenerative farmers, you know, who basically they became regenerative farmers because they hit the wall yeah. and they did not do it because of war- global warming. In fact, they were naysayers. They, they either didn't believe it or just said, you know, uh, and, and they called it a belief system. You know, I don't believe it. And as if science was a belief system, it's not, but but now that they're doing it and they're getting paid for, they're, not, they're starting to get paid. You know, getting checks for mm-hmm. carbon. They're going. They're actually looking at it the way they should, which is actually there's more opportunity going ahead in healing the future than stealing the future. The dead end. It's a dead end. You can see it. And so the future belongs to those who are going to heal it, and that brings people together in a way uh, that was unanticipated that they didn't know that sort of sort of softens the hard edges of belief systems that have been, you know, exacerbated by demagogues and populists, you know, and uh, people, you know, who are trying to basically take advantage of people's uh, insecurity and fears and uh, <laughs> crisis of identity. And so if, if they think it's bad now, you know, wait till climate amps up. And I think we'll see... We'll see what people do. It could go either way, Condon. Yeah. I, I'm not, but I think that 
what I see in rural areas, what I see in regions, what I see um, in, in, in all sorts of areas is people coming together around fisheries, fisheries water, health, uh, economic well-being, uh, you know, just the things that tie them together and that they know that tie them together, but um, yeah. shredded in the, po- in, in, in the real politic, you know, like, but not locally. And when we get local, what unites us is more important than what divides us. And I see the solution to reversing global warming actually as a regional local localization effort, as opposed to this is what you can do as an individual. This is what you can, this is what the government could do, should do, or comes to place, but never does, never does so far. Yeah. And actually there's this beautiful thing happening between those two. Uh, that is always in, it's created by individuals. It's incepted by individuals. It's, um, begun by individuals, but it becomes, you know, one person becomes two people, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16. And then this is how, this is the agency which we all have. And, you know, the dream of every cell is to become two cells. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we're cells. We're, this, we're a cell in the body. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because where I saw surprisingly the most incredible coming together across the whole world was, um, and, and, and what was really surprising is what made it happen was the killing of George Floyd, the murder of that black man in the streets in Minneapolis here in this country. And I think, of course, the, the you know, the context was that everybody was at home, you know, COVID had us at home and quiet and sensitive and not busy out there in the world, caring, just taking care of ourselves. And we were but this this happened in the streets of Minneapolis, and to see the world, Paul, the world change the world, yeah, the world marched, marched young, old, black, brown, what everybody was like, no, life is sacred. No. Right. At a time when people were dying of this of this pandemic and to see this nonsensical death, it was no. And that gave me more hope than anything that I've seen in, in probably in my lifetime to see one thing in a Black American man yeah. And how it broke people's hearts open. Broke people's hearts open. Yeah, I mean, it, and the thing is, he it wasn't like he's a heroic figure. Uh, he's heroic in death, but I mean, not, you know, I mean, he was a good man. He was good to his daughter, you know. He was buying cigarettes. He was so prosaic, you know, what he was doing. Yeah. Uh, and... It's what I mean about what unites us actually is far more important than what divides us, you know. And um, in climate, you know, the the the, the homeschooling we're getting <laughs> from the planet, I think is going to bring us together. It is bringing us together. Yeah. And uh, and, it, and I think it's going to be the best. It's it's going to be the place that is the most 
interesting to be part of, you know, um, because it is regenerative and it creates and the outcomes are beneficial Mm -hmm. to people and place and the future and children and, you know, um, and as opposed to otherwise. And, uh, um, people love to come together. You know, baseball season is almost at the end and there's big crowds and people are cheering and all that sort of stuff. Yes. Social beings. We like to be together. We like to learn together and solve problems together. And I think what regeneration can do in these solutions and hopefully all the different amazing organizations and people in the world right now, you know, the regenerative movement is the burgeoning movement. This isn't us saying, Oh, we think there should be a regeneration movement. No, it's, it's here. Yeah. Never seen anything grow so quickly. Many of the people who've been around the environmental movement say the same. Um, somebody asked me, are you worried about the word being co-opted? And I said, not at all, because it already was co-opted. And that happened really quickly. <laughs> but I think so wonderful about the word is that you can say, you know, oh, you're sequestering carbon and putting glyphosate in the soil. You're not regenerating. Get out of here. Right. <laughs> right. So people can see it right away, you know, that it's not yeah. you know, what's BS. Yeah. And so I see it as humanity coming together in the face of danger, uh, threat, for sure, uh, dislocation, disruption, uh, and uh, so I'm very, um, what's the word, um, I feel optimistic about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The rate it does and you know, the pushback it gets from, you know, a very corrupt political system, um, mm-hmm. uh, the oligarchy, we saw the, basically the Pandora <laughs> papers <laughs> published this uh, weekend by the Washington Post about how that, right. Leaders, you know, you know, just very people and what they're doing with their money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think you're right, Paul. I'm also, I'm an optimist. Absolutely. I, I, I'm actually, you know, one of the things that I'm doing, I think he knows I'm working with black farmers and here, and that's why I moved. I left Oakland to move to Louisiana to, to help, um, lift them up in some ways. And, and we're doing regenerative ag, but we don't call it that because it's not what they want to hear. They want to know how they're going to be able to, you know, um, make it at the end at the end of the year, right? And so, and we're bringing a climate resilient, beautiful um, way of growing rice to them. And then on the other side, there's another program with Jubilee Justice where we are what we call the journeys where we bring people together across race and cross class. And it is so powerful what's happening in that other part of what I'm doing right now and seeing people coming together, sitting in spaces that you would even someone, a black woman said this in our last, this is all in Zoom, gathering said, I'm about to say something that I never say in front of white people. I only say with black people. And she said what she had to say. And we're opening in ways that we have to now. We, we have to do this work. Yeah. We have to do, we have to have our own spaces. Absolutely. We have to have our, and we have to have it together because this is, and so the work that's happening, and I'm very optimistic as well about that. Um, 
I know that there's, it's a big lift. 98% of the people have to move quickly. Um, now we have to really figure that out. And just again, by just jumping and doing, I love the website. I love the punch list. I love, I'm just going to start talking about the website and sending people to the website, to the book, um, regeneration.org. It is a place of gathering and it is definitely, um, has so much potential. It has so much potential to be that lever that can change things and make the biggest difference, the biggest difference. I think one of the things that <clears throat> that is about the website is that it's it's really a collaborative and it's a partnership with many other organizations and they're not all shown yet. I mean, the book came out before the website, so to speak, the website. <laughs> and uh, so there's still work by the Damon Gamow in Australia and Clover Hogan at Force of Nature and John uh, Elkington in London and the Climate Action Systems with Elon uh, uh, Rosenblatt and Rosamund Zander. Um, the, um, I, we're, I, we're working with the University of California, Irvine, um, to become our partner. They are the only university in the world to receive a Nobel Prize for climate science. Mm-hmm. Molina. Uh, they started the first earth sciences, um, school in the world. Uh, and the biggest scientific school in North America. They have the most first-gen students. First-gen students in parlance is students who come from families that didn't have any college graduates. They have more first-gen students, and they're highly diverse. I mean, you know, um, than all the Ivy League schools put together. They're rated number one and two in alternating years by the Sierra Club as the greenest school in the United States. They have 21 uh, lead platinum buildings. They're turning the campus into a microgrid as a way to model. Wow. Generation and distribution of energy, renewable energy. And they're talking about creating the center for regeneration, which would give it, you know, both on the research side, they're becoming a partner to us. There's another, uh, see, how do I say this? My probably shouldn't say it, but there's another collaboration that's coming to us. That will, I think, make it make so when you go there, it's not like okay, it's us. We have these firewalls, you know, and you can't go anywhere else. And, and there's hyperlinks. What we're trying to do is with uh, is architect it so a way that you can go in and out of other websites and apps and things and come and go, so that we erase that mm-hmm. um, that thing. Like you know, we all do it. It is our websites. You know, it's like the, it's walled. And then as NGOs, we get funded, you know, according to how we're different than other ones. You know, why are we better, better? I mean, no one does this. We're unique. Right. We are going towards the opposite, which is shared, collaborative. Um, some of the media, some of the video stuff that's coming uh, will very, very much be about that. We're talking about a six-part series uh, docu-series, uh, I don't know if it will happen, but I'm going to invoke her name anyway. But so the, 
the producers were talking to Amanda Gorman, you know, as narrator. And what I said to, this is a famous company that is, you know, who does amazing work in terms of uh, movies and television. And what I said to them, we, if we have another climate trope documentary, it's like, uh, you know, we, if we don't look at this with new eyes, it's completely different. And if you don't want to watch this, if, if you don't really know, understand climate, but you can't turn it off and you want to binge watch it, we know we're on the right track. Um, mm, beautiful. We can open, open yeah. so that yeah. people can see, and this sounds narcissistic. It's not people can understand their self interest in it, you know, mm-hmm. and they, you know, that this is how I benefit and how I become a better mother or father or uncle or aunt or, you know, what pastor or, you know, imam or whatever, you know, um, is, this is, this is the opening. And, and to see, to see, to see climate and see the crisis, to see global warming as an opening rather than a curse, as an offer instead of a take, is really the heart of regeneration. And the fact of the matter is that for years, decades, we've been told that if we go towards addressing global warming, we're going to screw ourselves up economically. Well, we are screwing ourselves up economically right now because all the money is being concentrated in a tiny, tiny few hands in the world. And active regeneration does the opposite. It creates meaningful, living wage jobs to give people purpose and dignity. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So many jobs are out there. You make your fifteen, twenty dollars an hour, but I mean, end of the day, you don't feel like it had any meaning. And the number one cause of depression is lack of purpose. Yeah, that's it. It's still that separation. It's, it, it builds into the separation that's what of, of purpose. Yeah. Bringing the world back to life doesn't give you a sense of meaning in your life and for your family and respect and. That's right. And, I don't know what, I don't know what will. Right. That's right. I think that I agree with everything you're saying, Paul. I think that, um, that's the key. That is the key. And we have what we need. We have, we really do. Yeah. We have it. Um, I'm so grateful for this, you know, you in general, you know that. And, You've always been just on the leading edge of of um, a, a better world, a better better beings, better world. And this latest work has I, I loved Drawdown, and as you know, you know I loved it, and um, and now this is just a, a, another layer, just another layer, and it's what we need right now. Um, and I'm, I just want to um, just spread it wide. And if people can just get even a little bit of it, what regeneration is and how they already have it and how they already are of it. And just putting life at the center of all, everything we do and decisions we make. Just that. If they just hear that, don't read the whole book, you know. Just know that and think, okay, everything that I do, every decision that I make, put life at the center of it. Okay. 
it, first of all, it makes it's, it's presence. You're asking for presence. You're saying, be aware, stop and, and, and look and be aware and observe because we just do things, you know, next thing I know I'm on Amazon or whatever you are on that you buy stuff. And, and it's like, no, it's like, be aware first, stop and have presence and then make decisions that center life. And when you do that, all of these, all of these ramifications, all of these things that we are trying to change um, become apparent that, that they're connected to our choices. They're connected to not centering life. They're connected to not centering life. And, and it's, it's, as you said, it's, it's, it's who we are. It's who we are as, as, as beings on the planet. We center life. I love, um, what was it that, um, I, I love Lila June's, what she said, um, and her part in, in it. Um, and, um, she, she talked about, um, what was it called? I wrote it down. I don't have it in front of me. Um, the kinds of beings that uh, that create habitat for other beings. Yeah, she she said. What was it? The first time I'd ever read it, actually, but she talked about um, the uh, cultures, the indigenous cultures that had populated um, that whole belt of Tennessee, Kentucky, and the whole eastern lands there, which were so biodiverse. And the rich and, and fecund. Um, All right, keystone species. I was going to tell you, yeah. She anyway. She described the first time I ever heard a human described as humans as keystone species. And keystone species are species that, in the matter, in in the way they live their life, they create more life <laughs> for others. And so, bees and hummingbirds are keystone species. So. Are, so are wolves, so are beavers. There's many different types of keystone species, but observably, you know, the, what they do actually creates the conditions for more life. And actually that's what life does, period. Life creates the conditions for more life. And I thought her uh, essay at the Forest's Farm is beautiful because it really chronicled, you know, she's studying, she's getting her PhD in pre-Columbian food systems. And the idea, again, the projection from, let's be honest, starving Europeans who came to America who were not doing well with respect to food has projected ever since onto the Native Americans who are here that somehow they were, they were living a hard scrabble existence and barely able to feed themselves is absolutely, again, completely false and upside down and backwards and so forth. Probably one of the most sophisticated food systems in the world, uh, all the way down to Mesoamerica and South America. I mean, astonishing Mm. agronomists and plant understanding and so forth. But I feel like you started this thing talking about dairy products and that basically when you discovered through Arnold Arrett's work, you know, that if you didn't eat a dairy product, okay, you could breathe and uh, you didn't have stomach cramps, okay? So that is a basically a system mm -hmm. on the mason's body mm -hmm. giving feedback, right? right? Right. And then when you address the feedback, you, life got better. Right. Global warming is the planet, it's a system, 
is giving us feedback. The feedback you got from your body was a blessing, not a curse. It was, it was again, an opening. It was actually a tell. It was a suggestion. It was like, listen up, whatever. And the same thing is happening to us in the entirety of our system, this beautiful planet that we live upon and within. And so it's giving us feedback. Yeah. Feedback is actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's an opening. That's what I was trying to say. It's like, it's like, it's a gift. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that somehow those who have it are suffering, you know, from the past changes in extreme weather, you know, are a gift. That's not a gift to them, but it's a gift to us on our terms of our awareness of what we could become. Yeah. And this is a, a basically an inflection point or it's not. I believe it is. Yeah, it absolutely is. So interesting. I think about those last words of, you know, besides calling for his mother, um, you know, I can't breathe. And I was saying, I can't breathe you with your, with your, um, uh, what do you call it? The lung, um, you, I can't breathe. And I think the earth is saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And so breath is life and we got to center it. I'm so pleased to have this time with you, Paul. Thank you so much. We could talk all day. I know. <laughs> we talked for an hour before. So much more, but it's just so good to have you and to, you know, just always count on you. I do. I count on you. I do. I think, I think, what would Paul think? What would Paul do? I, you, you're a barometer for me personally. And, um, and it's hard because God is such a high bar. Sometimes I think, oh God, just get him out of my mind. Can I just do this thing? <laughs> you know, but it's like well, I don't want to be that kind of boy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good thing. Uh, ultimately, it's a good thing, and I just pray for us all. Thank you so and much. We can all um, do this thing. Do this thing called life together, happily, joyfully. Thank you for what you're doing. For really, I mean. Yeah, I know what you're doing. I mean, you've described it to me before. It's amazing, and uh, it's that's it. Yeah, that is it. And everyone you found your it to do, you know, and and you're learning from it, and it's growing, and it's transformative. And there's seven point eight billion of us, you know, and whether we're your children or whether you're senior citizen, everything in between, we all can find our it. We can all find a way mm-hmm. to change, to transform, mm-hmm. um, to move towards regeneration. And uh, it is such a cool thing to do. And as I said, it, <laughs> it, it doesn't make us economically insecure. Where we're going is making us very economically insecure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Kanda. All right. See you around town. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.